Hey everyone, the interview I have for you today is very exciting and insightful. I think it will stimulate a lot of questions and conversations for you and your families. Please do remember if you're finding any value in this podcast, please share it with others. Head over to where you get your podcast and leave me a review. That will help other people find the podcast and hopefully bring value to them as well. All right, no more delays. Let's get started. So welcome everybody back to another podcast episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. We have an expert with us, Lisa Powers. She is an estate attorney and has been gracious enough to spend some time with us today. Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. So I am, I am so you kind of, I, I have had a person like you on my list to interview for since before I started the podcast, there was a a, a checklist I made and finding somebody with your background and you kind of fell into my lap. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. If you could just give us a quick background of kind of where you're from, what kind of hobbies do you have just, just about you in general, before we get into the other details. Well, I'm a mom, so I don't really have a lot of hobbies, you know, hiding in my closet. <laughs> Sometimes. No, I'm joking. Um, my kids are older, but it's felt that way for a while because you're so busy with them. Um, I am originally from upstate New York, Rochester. I went away for school and moved back uh, over 20 years ago now. So, you know, here, here I am in Rochester. I have two amazing kids, a uh, teenager and a 20 year old. And I would say, hobbies when I'm not working. I've tried to start gardening the last few years because I've always had issues killing plants rather than cultivating them. And I love to cook. Um, and I'm a voracious reader of lots of different things. So hey, you were just yeah. telling me about your, your audible obsession. I need to get back into yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. awesome. So when are you yes. going to empty nest? How many more years? Uh, I have two more years before my, my youngest is off to college. But I, I, I still don't think it's really going to be empty then. I'm kind of in denial about that. We'll see. Right. Well, you know, there's yeah. some kids that boomerang back for lots of different reasons. So. Yeah, we're, we're not sure. We're not sure where that one's heading. So it might be closer to home. So I need to make sure there's sure. a place to land. But no, they're, they're great. And they're, they're looking forward to getting away from me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell me about how you kind of, um, what your current, you know, career position is and how you got there. Sure. So I am with, is it okay to say the firm? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm with Harris Beach, which is a large, mainly New York based firm, although we do have offices um, up and down the East Coast in a variety of states. And I did not think that I would end up at a large firm. I've, I've been at a couple different locations in my career, and I actually started with a much smaller firm straight out of law school in the late 90s. And that was how I ended up becoming an elder law focused attorney. It was a firm that did very high end estate planning. And a lot of the folks who had significant wealth had built it up themselves. They were entrepreneurial, um, or were working in corporate America, you know, uh, in the C-suite, so to speak. But they had parents who, you know, had been farmers, factory workers, you know, very blue collar. Um, modest assets, but they were getting older. They were dealing with health issues. They were worried about what's going to happen if I have some big medical expenses. And because I was young and not threatening and perceived to be rather nice, um, the powers that be said, you know what, why don't you talk to those folks? 
<laughs> and you know this was in the capital district of new york so and i was specifically working in a town called schenectady which has a very very large italian um, base and i grew up in a town that's very italian so what that meant for me was that a lot of these folks have mobility issues and i had to go to their house to meet with them so you know, you don't always think about attorneys doing house calls, but I would have to go sit in their kitchen and drink amazing Italian coffee and, you know, be fed homemade pastries. So in the first year that I was out of law school, I gained almost 15 pounds. Oh my gosh. Yep. It was an occupational hazard. It was. It was a good one, though. Um, I, I, my, I had to have some major alterations on my wedding gown, but that was okay. It was worth it. And um, yeah, I sort of just fell into it. And I thought, wow, this, this is, this is working. I'm sitting with people. Um, at one point I had thought I wanted to be a journalist because I've always been really nosy and I loved to write and I loved to interview people. So it meant going to their home, hearing their life stories. They would show me photo albums. I really got to know them as human beings. It wasn't just about what do you need done with your legal issues and the finances. And so, you know, I fell into it and I was like, wow, this really is a holistic practice. Here I am. And 25 years later, I'm still doing it just in a different setting. That's amazing. So I'd like to I just, this is a side note, curious what it was like to be a female in law school. You said it was the early 90s? Um, mid 90s. Actually, mid -90s. By, the time, by the time I was in law school, I think... And I'll get the statistic wrong. And if one of my, you know, if one of my fellow alums listens, they, they'll call it and correct it because, you know, everybody has to be right. I believe that our class had more women than men in it. And if it wasn't my class, I think it was the year behind us. So, yeah, we had definitely caught up by then in terms of numbers in school. That's interesting. I, I finished medical school in 2008 and my mm -hmm. class was graduating class was 60 percent female. Mm hmm. So it had, had the yeah. tide had turned by then. Yes. yes. Very interesting. And I know we're not talking about that, but I but I have noticed even so there might have been more going to school, but I noticed a lot more of my I shouldn't say I've noticed more. I've noticed a number of my colleagues chose after law school to stop practicing altogether and stay home full time. Oh wow. Yep. Yep. Or completely changed careers a few years in. It's like Okay, got that degree, paying back these loans, but I'm really unhappy, so I'm going to go do something else. How, how happy have you been with elder law? It's a really wonderful practice area. I learned early on that I'm, I, I would say I'm a fierce advocate for my clients' rights, but I'm not someone who likes to be in court. I get too emotionally connected to my clients. Mm -hmm. That's not good. You have to be able to have that distance. Um, I can have that distance with uh, dealing with government benefits and dealing with caseworkers. And if I have to go into court, I will, but I never would have wanted to spend my career in court. So and what are a couple of reasons that somebody would go to court in elder law? So you usually don't have to. Um, I will say I don't do a lot of this in my practice, but there are other people in my firm who handle it. If there is an issue with capacity, and someone right. doesn't have the proper planning in place, you will often have to resort to, well, we call it guardianship in New York and other states, it's conservatorship, but basically someone else having to be appointed to either manage personal needs, property and finances or a combination of the two. So I had a couple of heartbreaking cases 
that involved those issues early on in my career. And I was like, yeah, this is not for me. Um, yeah. But happily, there are people who will do it. Because basically what it comes down to for most people is it's like, you know, you're you're having a custody dispute over your parents. So it's siblings right. who are, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's just, it's sad, it's destructive. Um, and in most instances, it can be avoided if you actually just do your planning and name trustworthy people to manage things for you if you lose capacity. Can, so. can you just talk about sort of the scope of what an elder law attorney manages, like just kind of from like a 30,000 foot view? Yeah, so usually people are coming to an estate planning slash elder law attorney because they know they want to plan for ultimately what happens with their things, their assets when they pass away. And if they admit it to themselves, they're concerned about who's going to step in and take care of things for me if I become ill um, or lose my ability to manage things during my lifetime. So usually they're coming in because they know they need a will, they need a power of attorney, whether it's medical or financial. Um, and they're just trying to make sure things are taken care of. Sometimes people actually start when they should. You know, technically all of us should have things in place once we turn 18. You know, you're a doctor, healthcare proxy or healthcare power of attorney, depending on the state you're in, right? Someone should be named to make decisions for you if you can't. Um, that's the the prompt usually comes because they've met with their. This is when I get people. They've met with their financial advisor and it's on the to do list. And they're sick of being told they need to take care of it. So they right. come and it off the list. Or they've planned a big life event, major trip, and everyone's going to be on the plane. Oh my gosh, what happens if we all go down? So they will call two weeks before they're about to get on the plane. <laughs> I was going to say, they're not calling um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or sadly, more often than not, there's been some catastrophic event and either someone's in the hospital and they're panic stricken and trying to scramble and figure out is there anything in place what can we do or we know there's nothing in place what can we do how can you help us are we going to lose everything to long-term care costs is is the person that's contacting you um, more often the spouse or the child of the person kind of concerned i would say it's about 50 50 you know kind of okay. depends on the situation um, very often it'll be a child who's organizing things, but it'll then still be their parents who actually are coming to the meetings. And we run into, you know, as an attorney, we're always focused on ethics, believe it or not, ethics and who is our client and preserving confidentiality. So I probably more than most other practice areas find myself saying, look, you can invite whoever you want into our meeting and future meetings. But as soon as you do that, you're waiving confidentiality. Do you understand that? You know, if you come by yourself or with your spouse, whatever is said at the table, that stays among us. You know, as in, once I'm your attorney, we have to have, we have to give the disclaimer, we have to have an attorney client relationship and then it's confidential. Right. Um, but very often people will want to have all their kids in the room. So, you know, if I could ask you some silly questions. So yeah. if it's the adult child that contacts you mm -hmm. because their mom or dad is having some sort of cognitive impairment, right. even if they're funding the actual like, uh, attorney fees, your client is actually the person, not the person to me, so like funding it, but it could be right. that parent, right? 
Or yeah. it is that parent. Yeah. I'm sorry. And so and so that's a big part of the initial intake is trying to determine are are you hiring me because you want to understand what your rights are, you know, in terms of managing things for your parents? Because sometimes I will get a call and, and someone's already been named as a power of attorney agent, for example, or they're trustee of a trust that their parents created. So they're already managing something. But up until now they've been pretty hands off. Like I know I have this role, but you've been able to take care of things on your own. Now I'm noticing things slipping. So sometimes it's really clear cut. Sometimes they're calling, trying to get information. And I say, okay, well, I can talk to you and give you general information. But if this is for, you know, your mom, Jane, Jane's really going to be the client. And that's who I need to meet with. And no offense, you can even be the taxi driver and bring her in. But if she's my client, I'm going to ask you to wait out in the lobby while I meet with her, unless she says she wants you there. So yeah. And so you have seen setups, like you mentioned, so you have like a corporate CEO, but they're trying to manage something for their parents. So the, the parent can be your client, but the fees can actually be paid by another family member. How does that work? So, and so that's something, and I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that it's the same in every state. It's very clear for us here in New York. Someone, anybody can pay the legal fees, but they do not have a right to dictate what happens within the relationship. So. Okay. I do occasionally have kids say, look, send me the bill, send me the bill for whatever you do for mom and dad. But right. unless they've been intimately involved in the parents have waived confidentiality, they're going to get a, you know, there'll be a detailed bill for the parents if they want it that's sitting in the file, but all the child is going to see is, you know, legal fees, services provided by Lisa Powers, and here's the amount. Right, right, right. Gotcha. They don't see all the details. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, yeah. so half the time the client is the parent, half the time is the, the kid who's been assigned these duties as help um, enlisting your services to help kind of right. understand. One of the questions I have on the, so from the medical side, mm -hmm. we often see where somebody has elected a medical power of attorney and not told right. them, um, which is weird because, and I guess it's not, right. I was, because my dad elected me as this and I, I was assuming he would, but I thought there would have to be some process where like I had to formally, uh, I was learning as we go, where I had to like right. agree to be that person. Yes. And I realized and he just went through this and I'm in Texas that, that that wasn't required. And then it often happens in a hospital setting where somebody produces a medical power of attorney and we call them and they're like, I haven't talked to that guy in three years and I right. don't know who the, I, we're estranged and like, I don't want anything to do with this. And so I think there's a misconception that, that mm -hmm. somehow writing somebody's name as this person, it some, I'm not sure what that sort of obligates that person to do because it can be done without even seeking, as far as I can tell, consent or permission from the person being named. Yeah, and so, and that is something that varies state to state, And but it is, it, you're completely 100% right. In New York with our healthcare proxies, you can name someone without them being aware that you've named them. So that's part of our meeting. Okay. Have you thought about who you want to name? Have you had conversations with them? Right. You know? right. So, because that's, that's the next step is, you know, to one, okay, great. You picked someone, but do they know what your wishes are, especially about end of life care? Right. So, um, and I know there are different schools of thought and, you know, you being a medical doctor, I, I do not do 
in New York, you know, we can have a living will. I typically don't do a standalone living will for anyone. I say if they want one, then by all means, you go write it yourself. But in New York, our legal document is a healthcare proxy. And that's just naming the agent. And there are a couple things that have to be part of it. Um, like our statute says that your agent needs to know your wishes regarding artificial nutrition and hydration. That's it, right? You can, you can amplify it and you can go, I don't know what Texas does. Um, we have most forms, medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. And I know in some states it's a physician's order or what, a post. Um, so I don't know what you guys have. So, you know, I find myself very often saying to people, okay, look, lay person here, no medical training whatsoever. This is my opinion. If, if you can get your doctor or provider to sit down and take the time with you and you feel very strongly, do the most because now you've got a medical order, then the healthcare proxy fills in. And if you want to really have some written guidance, then you do a living well. What, what was the first thing you said, a most? A most, medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. I oh, know I've never heard the term. Okay, so I know it's not everywhere. I know it's in a number of states now, um, but it's, it's a document that deals with, and I'll, I won't have all of them, but you know, do not resuscitate, do not intubate, do you want okay. antibiotics if you have a terminal illness, right? Like, what, what are we doing for you? And it gives the, I always want to say client, it gives the patient the information from a treating provider. You know, like, what does it really mean to be intubated? What happens? I'm not qualified mm -hmm. to explain that to someone. I know things anecdotally from family members and friends who've been through different situations, but... Um, so I always recommend people have that conversation. And since people, since the providers can bill Medicare for it, you know, if someone is on Medicare, right. like, good, call your doctor, you know, let the office know you want to talk about it so that they give you enough time on the schedule and not just the standard 15 minute visit, because obviously it's not going to happen in that. Um, and then they know they can bill for it. So you'll actually get educated properly. And then you know, all the other things that might come up, then your healthcare proxy can fill in for you. Right. So um, for us in New York, since 2009, you can't pull the sneak attack on your financial power of attorney. They have to actually sign and agree to be your agent. But prior okay. to 2009, same thing. I would get calls, you know, mom's in the hospital and I'd say, okay, hold on. You know, I'm like, oh, looks like your power of attorney. And they'd say, what? I thought it was my brother. Right, right, right. Nope. <laughs> nope, that would be you. And they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know where anything is. Like, I know where mom goes to the bank because I see the statements when I pop over, they're sitting on the kitchen table, but that's all I know. So, have, have you come across any um, platforms or technologies that help uh, with that exact scenario where somebody's got to have a list of accounts or passwords or, you know, especially if there's an unexpected illness where somebody's incapacitated? It's not, you can imagine just opening somebody's laptop, you can't even get in. Right. Um, and so have you, have you seen any creative tricks to sort of, you know, withhold as much privacy and independence sure. up until the moment somebody else needs to look at it? What, what have you seen that was successful? So people handle things different ways. Um, I know some firms will have, similar to financial, they will have, um, you know, like a, a share file setup or, you know, a vault that people can access. And so 
the custodians will know who's allowed to have it if they need access, but they won't get access until that point. Um, we're not quite that formal. Uh, what I, I had my own firm for a number of years when my kids were little and I started doing it then. People get frustrated with me because I ask for a lot of information up front, but we do a really detailed, we call it an asset inventory. So we know where all the accounts are, at least at that time. Um, we make sure beneficiary designations are in place. We make sure we have copies of everything. And then we have this simplified, essentially spreadsheet. You know, it's one page is real estate, one page is investment accounts, bank accounts. Uh, you know, if you have your own business, any anything that's other than real estate. And then one page is life estate, excuse me, life insurance. And one page is retirement accounts, right? And then we have the backup for all of that that's saved digitally. So if someone has to step in, I can at least pull that short document and say, okay, it's been a couple of years since they came in to see me and I would update it every time a client would come back for a review meeting, but I could at least say, okay, here's what everything was in 2021, the last time we did an update. So here's your starting point. And it's a, it was a nice checks and balances, even with my clients who were coming in, whether or not the kids were involved to kind of look and say, okay, well, you know, in 20, I have some long-term clients and I noticed this where they were starting to have some, you know, memory and I'll say neurological issues because, uh, you know, they weren't diagnosed, but I was noticing things when I talked to them. Okay, you had $200,000 in this account when I saw you in 2015. Now there's only 35,000. You told me you hadn't made any major improvements to the house and you really haven't been sick. Where's the money gone? Were you making gifts? Were you paying for college for grandchildren? What did you do with it? Did you move it over into a different account? You know, and with one couple in particular, we found out that he had been scammed and he was actually sending money, but he was afraid to tell his daughters that he had done it. Oh, so we were able to get, we were able to get the bank involved and they shut the account down and, you know, things worked out, but it was, it was scary. And it was just one of those things where if we hadn't had that just as, and it's such a simple tool, it's not technology based, right? I mean, it's a word document right. that I put together, um, but it's just a good reference point. So, and so we use that regardless of where anyone is, you know, whether they are a senior, it's one of my clients who's in their thirties and just having their kids and trying to get things together because we're all busy you lose track of where things are, especially if you're someone who is switching jobs, right? Or you move, whether it's within the state or to another part of the country, right? You always hear about people forgetting a small 401k or something in a prior employer. So it's just a right. good way to keep tabs. Right, right. So I wonder if, you, and I'm sure you've come across this as you've been doing this for a long time. Um, clinically, there's a point before they lose capacity that they're mm -hmm. still considered to have capacity to make decisions, but they're not making great decisions. They're making purchases that are uncharacteristic for them. There's kind of some shady investments and now there's, now they're sort of a vulnerable population and people are coming around and, and I feel like it's not as black and white as it sounds like either we're, we're all cognitively intact and making great decisions or the court comes in and says, you can't make a, you're, you're not making good decisions. And it is a very involved process to deem somebody unable to make their own decisions. The assumption is that they are making their autonomous and that they have rights to spend the money that is theirs, how they want to. 
And so how do you, that gray zone sort of before you hit that limit, that that's an official legal limit that somebody will go through the trouble to, to take over affairs. And I think of this in sort of the progression of a mild cognitive impairment yeah. that is persistent, but the person is still driving, maybe even still working in some capacity, but the money that they may have been intending to help support them through their retirement or maybe through an assisted living starts sort of like seeping out the bottom into other things. So what, what are your, what's your take on that situation? So yes, sadly it comes up fairly. I I won't say often it comes up from time to time. So we're all very conscious of it. I think it's one of those things where it's frustrating because as you mentioned, people do have rights and you really do have to look at the totality of the circumstances, right? Was it a one-time thing or is there a pattern that's happening? And sometimes no one becomes aware of it until there is a crisis. And then you do finally get a chance to actually look and see that funds have been leaving the accounts for a number of months and they're hard to explain. Or, you know, there are addiction issues that come up later in life, for example, right? That you don't, that people manage to hide very well. So as an attorney, my role is just try to, to try to make sure that there are trustworthy people named who can take over if that determination is made that the person is incapacitated. But certainly if I'm aware of it, we're usually trying to work to put people in touch with, if they're not already working with their providers with someone. Um, I'm a huge fan of geriatric care managers getting involved and social workers and trying to make sure we find supports in the community. I'm really blessed. I'm in an area here in Rochester where we have um, a phenomenal agency called Lifespan and they contract throughout New York State to provide a lot of services. And one of the things that they actually provide is an elder abuse education program. And they also help with multidisciplinary teams. So depending where you are in the country, um, if there is any kind of abuse, whether it's financial or otherwise, that is noticed, you know, you can get these other folks involved and potentially bring things into court. More often than not, it never goes there. Um, but there are folks who are willing to get involved and try to stop it and also try to go and reclaim funds that have been lost if you can actually document it and they might still be around. The problem is so many of these scammers, it's out of the country within you know hours of leaving the bank account. So more often than not, you're not getting the money back, but at least you've noticed the problem and you recognize it. And now you can work with the family and the individual to still try to preserve as much of their decision making as possible, but you know, hopefully get them to agree that the day to day money management needs to shift hands now. That's good. I, I find this to be one of the most difficult topics with this um, mm -hmm. and the overall sort of caring for um, people that have a cognitive impairment is because part of the impairment is the insight is gone. Right. And it's not like somebody's like, oh, I'm not you know, I'm not making good decisions. Would you please come and help me organize this and get better? That's like, it's like <laughs> the way that it, that it happens is those are partners. It's like, not only are you impaired, but you also lose some of the insight. 
And then you talked about, you brought up the biggest word, which is the shame or embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Once it's, it's discovered, then that even can feed forward into now I don't want to, now I have to cover it up. Or now there's this, this, and part of those scams can be, well, I'm going to threaten to tell your family exactly. that you gave me money. If you don't stop, it's like this weird, like, oh, it is. You know, you don't stop giving me money, then I'll go tell them you already given me 30,000 and they're going to be so mad at you. Right. Um, and, but, but you have that just enough impairment. And that's just such a, if you haven't seen it yet, it's hard to, to imagine. And it's really heartbreaking because um, a lot of, and you mentioned this as well. It's funny because we have a very similar perspective. What we don't, what we have to realize is people that are experiencing cognitive impairment still have what we call good cocktail language. They can say, yes. hi, how are you? What's going on? Did you watch the latest uh, football game? And, you know, how's your daughter doing? And, and it will sound if you're on a very surface level conversation that that person is the same person they've been the last 20 years. Right. And you have to be really subtle to sort of hear or, or a change. Um, yes. And you have to be really close to that person to understand that that these decisions, if they're even disclosed, are, are maybe difficult. And so it, you won't get as many warning signals as you would otherwise think, um, because part of the disease process is that your insight or awareness that it's happening is low as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's sad to say I, I personally, and I know I've had clients say this, I'm actually relieved whenever someone actually does say, you know, this is getting to be too much for me. I know I need help. I don't want to give it up. You still have to tell me what's going on and I still want to see all my statements, but yeah, I'm ready. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Thank you. Good for you. Right. Because that's the best of both worlds. You're going to get help, but you're still trying to pay attention and understand what's going on. Um, Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Uh, And again, depending on the specifics of the situation, we do sometimes recommend having professionals manage things. So it's not appropriate for all clients, but I will sometimes recommend that clients use a trust and have the bank or the trust company associated with their brokerage house step in and really manage most of the day-to-day finances for them because that that, what does that look like so what does a trust actually do say somebody has an account with two hundred thousand dollars in it and that's part of their retirement like what does that actually look like so retire you would never put a retirement account into a trust because if you do that it's treated as though you distributed the retirement account and they would get a 1099 and have to report all of the income that has been accruing inside that pre-tax investment. So we wouldn't do that. That would have to be managed by um, their power of attorney agent. But very often people like trust as a management tool because it keeps things private. Um, you hear a lot about, oh, you don't want to have to go through probate because everyone knows your business. Probate really isn't all that bad, depending on the state you're in. In New York, it's really not that bad depending on the county you're in, um, things are getting better, but some of our downstate counties, you really can have delays of, you know, three, four, five months before someone gets appointed to manage your affairs after you passed away. So for a variety of reasons, usually for management purposes, um, sometimes for tax planning purposes, sometimes for asset protection purposes, we'll create a trust. And I always tell people, you just think about a trust like a box. Okay, and so when you hear about living trusts, those are revocable. You can change your mind. You can do whatever you want with the assets that you put in. So you can put them in. You can take them out. So if you just think about it, it's like a box with a flap that just opens and closes. 
if it's an irrevocable trust and those tend to be used for asset protection or tax planning, now it's locked and you can't lift the flap up anymore yourself. Someone else has the key. So that's how I explain it. So a trust is just a way of holding assets and then the document, the trust document itself controls how things are run and managed. So you create it and there, there are different terms. You can be the grantor, the settlor. The whole idea is you're the creator of this mm -hmm. trust. And then the trustee is the person or the people who manage it. And then you have the thing that they're managing. So it can be real estate, it can be investments, it can be cash. Um, really pretty much anything can go into a trust. So for certain folks, as they're starting to lose capacity, if, they're, if there are difficult family dynamics, sometimes it's not appropriate to have a child manage the trust. Sometimes there aren't children. Sometimes you don't have anyone, but someone needs to be able to manage things for you. So that's a really good opportunity to use a professional to step in. They have a fiduciary, well, all trustees have a fiduciary duty, but if you're a professional trustee, like a bank trust company, um, you have the highest possible level of care because you are known as a professional. So they can come in, they can manage the investments, they do the accounting, they, they file the tax returns, you know, and you get your reports. So you pay a little bit more to have a professional versus a person, but depending on the circumstances that can really be lovely because now nobody in the family is pointing fingers at each other and being right. suspicious, right? Because that does happen in a number of families. Oh, well, mom named, you know, John, cause he's the oldest, but none of us trust him. We think he's probably trying to siphon funds off and we're never going to find out. Right, right, right. Right. So if you have the professional and John is a beneficiary, just like his other siblings, he has no control over it. So the professional is a bank employee. Is that kind oh, of the way to think about that? Right. So in, in most parts of the country, you can have a bank with trust services or you can have standalone trust companies. Or in some states, there are professional fiduciaries who are individuals who can serve as trustees. Um, we don't have that special distinction in New York, but you know that you can you can name your attorney to be your trustee. Um, most of us don't like to do that if we're the attorney. It's two hats. I'd rather only be trustee for a family member. Um, but I have done it for a few clients over the years where they just didn't have anyone, and the size of the assets that were going into the trust didn't really warrant a professional. So. Yeah. Um, but you know, you'll see attorneys, you'll see accountants. Uh, most of the time it is a family member though. And I'm going to ask you a silly question. Is there a, a distinction between an elder law attorney and an estate attorney? Like what's the overlap or the distinction? Yeah. So the elder, elder law attorneys like myself tend to be a little bit more holistic in our planning. Traditional estate planning tends to focus mostly on death and taxes. What happens when you die? Whereas and not that they're not concerned with incapacity, but as a whole, elder law has tended to be much more focused on, we want to honor your wishes throughout your lifespan. We're very concerned about making sure your dignity is preserved. What happens if you become incapacitated? And most elder law attorneys are very involved with folks and their families who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. So you find more elder law attorneys doing special needs planning 
Not, not that estate planners don't, but a lot of times they just don't do that much of it. So elder law can do estate planning, but not all estate planning does right. the full capacity of elder law. Okay. Right. That's and, really helpful. And you usually won't go to your traditional estate planning attorney if you're worried about um, having to qualify for Medicaid to cover long-term care expenses. Can we talk about that? That's a huge sure. topic. Yes, of course we can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, and every, what's really confusing about it, aside from the fact that Medicare and Medicaid sound almost identical, and unless right. you're going down that path, most people don't know the difference, right? You know, you're, you're entitled to Medicare if you've paid into the system and you reach the right age and fill out your paperwork, right? Done. Right. Medicaid, you have to financially qualify for. And it's a federal program, but it's run by the states. And so every state has its own idiosyncrasies. New York, it's in our constitution that if you are poor, we will take care of you. We have, you know, ever burgeoning numbers of folks on Medicaid. Right. So, um, and it's, it's fraught with difficulties. The rules are crazy and arcane. They don't make sense because you have an overlap of federal provisions with state provisions with local practice. You can't just go to one place to find out what the rules are. You can get the basics, you know, but you really need to be able to talk to someone to understand what's going on. And there's this huge fallacy that if I just talk to my neighbor at the cocktail party because, you know, they went through it with their parent, the same thing's going to apply. It's not true because the rules have changed over the years. The law keeps changing. The, the dollar amounts that you're allowed to keep keep changing. Um, you know, a huge... Thing that I'm always saying to people is in New York, our, our residents, if they have to apply for Medicaid and they have money in an IRA, it's exempt as long as they're taking required minimum distributions. It's not the case in all states. Right, right. You no. Know? And so I'll have people say to me, well, if I get sick, I'm going to just leave New York and go move down with my child in wherever. And I'll say, let's look and see, because you have $500,000 in an IRA. It's protected if you stay here, you mm. know, and sometimes I'll look and I'll be like, if you move there, it's no longer protected. You're going to have to start spending it, which is fine. That's a choice, right? right? But you need to know, you need to know what those rules are. And to life often, decisions that need kind of a pre-check, right? Exactly. And, and who would think, right? That is not what you're thinking about. You're thinking about, okay. Am I going to be able to find doctors that I like? Am I going to be able to find suitable housing? Am I going to be near the grocery store, right? You're not thinking about who's going to pay the bill if I end up at the nursing home and will I have anything left or am I going to have to really spend most of what I've saved? So. And I'm, going to, I'm going to speak just a moment about the, the Medicare Medicaid issue. So Medicare, if you're not aware and you're listening, is, is similar. It's a health insurance coverage, just like you would have like Aetna or Humana. And mostly you have to be um, meet the age, which is 65 right now. <clears throat> but there are some conditions where you have some disability and some other, um, you know, other meet other uh, financial metrics to get it. But Medicare, the most that it will pay for as far as any kind of inpatient care is obviously a hospitalization. And then beyond that, you can have some nursing facility days and some rehab days, but even those have limits. And then even for those, there's co-pays that kick in fairly within, you know, several weeks of the admission yep. date that will come in. And so I think 
I, I, and I work in that setting. I'm a rehab physician. So I see a lot of people who love the rehab facilities and want to live there. And then the <laughs> sad part is they, they, the, they come in, they have Medicare funding and sure. there is a, a hard limit to it such that if, if when your days run up with Medicare, you get a bill, a private mm-hmm. pay bill by day, which you don't even want to know what that is. It's really expensive. And so Medicare does have some um, extensions after hospital stays, but these are usually focused on skilled nursing or rehab meant to get you sort of back to the point where you could go home. And for a lot of families, it buys them some time if somebody does need to go into an assisted living or do the whole Medicaid process, you know, they can be sort of in these places temporarily getting nursing and, and rehab care, but it's not intended to be anything. It, it, it literally can't function like that. Right. And um, once they realize that, that Medicaid is really the uh, short of you having your own independent financial wealth or a long-term care insurance, if you are no longer able to live in your home safely, um, there, I, there, it's almost like there's a check, it's like a A, B, C, or D there, unless I'm wrong, I've not seen anybody take advantage unless there's an independent pay source. It's like a mm-hmm. wealthy family member or some right. lottery ticket. Like there isn't unlimited number of ways to pay for this. And I feel like, oh. and, and when you go down to like, okay, well, if Medicaid is a stopgap, do you understand that in each state, it can be really austere how um, you know socioeconomic, socioeconomically disadvantaged you have to be to qualify, and instead in Texas you have to have less than two thousand dollars. It's a poverty standard, right? Yes, it's a poverty standard, and so so it's like well, well, of course now you have this huge donut hole where people are not wealthy, but they're not they're, they're say getting exactly. a pension that's just over that, and they have these horrible kind of perplexing decisions that they have to make about like, you know, what do they do? So what are some of the strategies that you look at in trying to conceptualize that, that, you know, that kind of gray area? Right. So, you know, it's different for everyone. And again, this is where it goes back to, you've got to, you've got to meet with someone who's well-versed in the rules in your particular state. So in New York, we do have community Medicaid, meaning you don't have to be in the nursing home. So, and that's just this huge umbrella for all different programs, depending on what's going on with you. So, you know, it runs the gamut from folks who truly are poor and receiving SSI money from the federal government. So that automatically qualifies them for Medicaid to the folks I tend to work with who, who either have become disabled um, you know, under 65 through an accident or an illness, you know, developmental disabilities, or they're dealing with a diagnosis, you know, some form of dementia, Parkinson's, whatever it might be, where we're watching the decline and we know what the ultimate outcome is, sadly, but we don't know at what point it's really going to prevent them from staying home. So we're usually scrambling, trying to say, let's Let's make sure that we have comprehensive planning in place for you so that at the time when you can no longer make decisions for yourself, you've already appointed someone so we don't have to go through that traumatic court experience of a guardianship, right? So that's my starting point. Um, having the conversations about what, what healthcare do you want? What types of treatments do you want? And you can't always predict that, but you know, these days, most people have been through a situation with a loved one who, you know, was faced perhaps with having a feeding tube or was intubated, whatever it might be. So they have very strong reactions about that. So, okay, let's document that, 
right? You, you always have the prerogative to change your mind as long as you can communicate, but let's try and document it and have the conversations, have those difficult conversations. Then in terms of asset protection planning, you know, when you have spouses under federal law, you've got a lot more leeway in terms of being able to put assets in the spouse's name who isn't applying for Medicaid benefits, you know, without getting into numbers. So that's one way that we try to do things. And then if we're already dealing with someone who's single or we're dealing with a couple who is coming in early because they watched something happen with their parents, I mean, that that does come up a lot. I'll have people come in who are in their maybe early 60s, still really healthy, you know, um, but they just watched a parent go through something catastrophic. And they're saying, okay, I wanna protect assets. We wanna protect our assets. What can we do? And so then as an attorney, we're talking about using those irrevocable trusts where you put assets in and kind of lock them up. Right. So that, you know, and the reality is that doesn't actually do anything for my clients. That's them trying to do something for usually their kids or their grandchildren. They're trying to save assets that they want to pass on. Um, so there's, there's that piece. And then it really, I feel like I spend a lot of time telling folks that they need to make sure they're assembling a team. You know, you can't just rely on your financial planner. You can't just rely on your attorney. You need to have identified people who are going to step in. And that's where, like, I'm such a huge proponent of using, um, I still say geriatric care managers, life care managers, right? right. Um, because they can help source those community resources. They can help bring aids in. They can help you if you have to sadly transition to a higher level of care, you know? nobody wants to have to go into a nursing home right i mean maybe you like the idea of a senior community because some of them really are fabulous i mean i've been in a few that i'd move in now if i could mm -hmm. um you know it's like great food all kinds of activities it's beautiful and sunny and you know much more updated than my 1990s house so but not everybody wants that you know right. i certainly have plenty of clients who are like you're never getting me out of this house unless it's feet first and, you know <laughs> That's not realistic though, right? I mean, you're you're a doctor. We see it all the time. Okay, I understand those are your wishes, but if something catastrophic happens, you might not be able to go home. You might find yourself in the hospital where they're saying, it's not safe for you to go home. You're going to the nursing home, and if you don't improve enough, you're not leaving the nursing home. So let's make sure we make as many decisions as we can. Or God forbid, you've got mobility issues and you live in a 1960s split level house. How about before it gets to the point where you're falling down the stairs, we talk about transitioning to somewhere that you choose as opposed to the crisis hits. You fall and break a hip and now your kids are saying, mm -mm, you can't go back to that house. You're going somewhere else. And, right? and the facilities, you know, most of them, they most good hospitals can't release you to a home where you or can't take care of yourself. Like there's a state, there has to be what we call a safe, a state, a reasonably safe, yeah. Discharge, yeah. right. And yeah. so one of the things I say is, you know, conviction is not a plan. <laughs> and so when you bring it up, they're like very right. convicted that they are going to live the rest of their life in the mm -hmm. home. And, and everybody can want that, right. but, but I, that shouldn't, what will happen is you will put other people in a situation where you are right. unsafe in a home and there's even um, legal responsibilities for that. So if you're the person and I'm not sure it probably varies by state. Like if an adult is staying in their home and they're not safe and they're um, uh, not eating and their, their right. home is falling apart, 
then who does the state go to? Um, I know there are these kind of archaic, what are those filial laws yeah. that vary by state, but not often invoked. And so the state could just, um, I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm fumbling how to ask this, but like, if you decide to stay there and you're not safe, then there's not a whole lot of options. So somebody will eventually call APS or Adult Protective Services. I'll call APS or you'll have a fall and, you know, what what I see sadly happen, have seen happen on a number of occasions is, you know, the client's insistent that they're okay. And even if they have a spouse who also isn't capable of taking care of this other person, it could be because of size, just needs, you know, but they're too afraid to say no and, and they allow them to come home again. You know, I have a lot of those conversations with the spouse. I'm like, no, you have to tell them at the hospital that you can't take your husband home. You can't bring your wife home. It's not safe. You can't do it. You know, you're, you're not, you can't afford to have AIDS coming in for the number of hours they need, and you're not capable of doing it yourself and your family doesn't live here in town. You just have to be brave and tell the hospital so that they can help you arrange alternate placement. Um, but for those folks who are determined and convicted, like you said, you know, they'll come home, but they'll keep having falls. And eventually, you know, the ambulance companies will say, we can't keep coming. We can't keep coming. Right. We're going to bring you to the hospital and dissect, you know, because that becomes part of the plan. Well, I'll just call the ambulance and they'll come help me get back up. You know, I don't need to go to the hospital because there's really nothing wrong with me. I just need to help getting back up and situated. I was a little disoriented, but I'm fine now. Right. Yeah. And that goes back to um, episode we just did with Karen and she talks about that's what was it for her mom. She fell so many times that the ambulance finally said, we we're not you know you, you need to do something differently and right. um so yeah because i always like getting to into the nitty-gritty details of like what actually happens and so um is there if you're an adult child of somebody who's sort of making those types of decisions are there states or laws in which the adult child would become legally or financially responsible for somebody i'm not aware of any but again that's where your your best bet is to work with in this instance an elder law attorney in the state where you're right. you know where you're residing where you're thinking about having someone um you know and the sad thing is even even where adult protective does get involved if someone's being neglected nothing really happens the system is too overburdened you know the probably the best result is that usually that person will end up at least in a safe space at the hospital and then the hospital is going to work to right. make sure that someone usually in that case the hospital would often be the one petitioning to have a guardian or a conservator appointed and then they're going to help get that person placed somewhere that's safe but again the problem there is you have no say over it when it gets to that point people will talk to you but you don't get to determine okay. what's happening so if you're occupying a $4,000 a day hospital bed, they will find somewhere for Absolutely. you to go. And so yeah. people don't realize that it's like, well, then I'll get to go tour these spaces and then I'll figure out which one has the best color on the walls. I'm like, that is not mm -hmm. how it happens. No, if and, if it's a, and if it's a system where they have their own facilities very right. often, but so, so it's just kind of like kicking the can down the road because you know they're taking this person because of their fragility and their physical needs, mental health too, but usually it's physical, right? That prompts this. No one knows what the payer source is, you know, like they might not even have their Medicare card with them. So now they've got to place them. They say, okay, we just have to find a bed. 
And now it's on that nursing home or that assisted living to try to figure out how are we going to get paid for taking care of this person. And at that point, family's like, oh, phew, not our problem anymore. We don't have to talk to you. So, you know, so people. They'll go to what's called a a hospital contract bed. So the hospital might have a contract with a nursing home. That nursing home case manager will come to you and say, you need to qualify for Medicaid. Well, I look at all these assets. Well, then they go through this whole, like, how are we going to, now you're going to have to spend all those assets until you meet some qualifications for Medicaid. And then you go through that. So there is a process. It's not a pretty process. And um, it's funny because when you think about qualifying for Medicaid, you think, I know people that don't have a lot of money to spend, but if if you are uh, an adult child and you have some resources and you want to invest whatever it costs to have your parents go through that process, that may end up paying for itself in dividends, right? Because instead of Um, like a a fancy Christmas gift, maybe it's like you get to go to an elder law attorney so that we can (laughs) prevent some of these really challenging situations for both of us and preserve some of that relationship and maybe avoid some of the stress of, of going through that. Absolutely. And you bring up a good point too, because, you know, I know a lot of times adult children feel guilty and they're like, well, I should be the one who, you know, gives up what I'm doing and become the caregiver. I'm not a big fan of adult children being that caregiver because it changes the dynamic. And I think, depending on the situation and the personalities involved. I mean, it can really just ruin a parent-child relationship when you assume that caregiver role. I mean, it's lovely when it works. Don't get me wrong. I, I, at different points, both of my grandmothers lived with me growing up. And to me, that was a blessing. You know, as the granddaughter, I loved it. But I know it put a strain on both of my parents, you know? And I'm, I'm, that's really beautiful that you said that because I think there's an assumption that if you love your parent, then the next step is to become the person that showers them. And yeah. I'm not so sure that that is in that, that, you know, when I talk about this in the, the course that I have in other parts of the podcast, it's like right. having these conversations ahead of time. Um, there are some people who privacy wise would never want exactly. their child being with them when they're in the bathroom. And it's like, okay, well then, you know, then what does a caregiver cost and how many hours a day and you multiply? And that's part of the retirement planning, absolutely, the resource planning of, okay, well then you have many showers a week and, and, it, and it's really getting down into those details and, and not avoiding it because once it becomes an issue, that's the worst time right. to sit well, down and try to work through that. And it's, and it's always shocking to hear when you figure out how much it actually costs. No one ever estimates high enough what the costs of care are. It just doesn't seem possible. But unfortunately, these are businesses. And so it's not, you know, people say, well, why is it so much? And it's like, well, because they still have to meet all of their business expenses to keep a place running and pay the person who's providing your services. You know, right. And they'll say, well, I'll just, I get very upset when people say, well, I'll just have, you know, like a friendly person from church. That's fine if it's just someone who needs to be checked in on. I get nervous when people are trying to use, you know, friendly help when it's someone who really needs hands-on care. Because you have right, no or if it's temporary, like a, a hip replacement, and you're like, oh, I yeah. need somebody to come by a couple of times. But what people don't realize is a lot of these are progressive conditions, especially things right. like Parkinson's and dementia. Yes. Like there is no rehabbing back to where we were three years ago. This is proactive planning. And, and I know this is gut, gut wrenching for some people, but Absolutely. I'm a quality of life person. And 
planning is part of quality of life. And if you're really committed to that person having maximum function and quality of life, then this is part of it. It's this acknowledgement. It's like acceptance of it first yeah. and then moving through. And, and I know that's, that's, that's 90% of the battle is accept that this is happening um, and then hope for the best. I mean, I'm sure you've seen scenarios where you can plan for all the worst things and then life goes on and they're driving till right. they're 85 and, yes. you know, yeah. I mean, and, and so it's not like planning for it. I'm, it's kind of like on vacation. I pack for the worst. If you're a mom right. that does that, like we yeah. might actually need this, but you know, with, within my limitations of the baggage and, but, I know. but then I know I it won't. We don't really need three umbrellas, but yeah, I still put exactly. them on if they fit. <laughs> right. Right. And so it's like, well, if we need it, then it will be right. there versus, you know, this is not really like a fly by the seat of your pants phase of life. No. Um, and, and no, you know, some people get away with it and some people, I, I mean, that's a blessing. I mean, that's, exactly. you've hit it's the, I call it out. hitting the lifespan lottery, right? So right. you had a, a above average lifespan and didn't yeah. require hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of care, exactly. which happens. And people right. are, have no idea, like you can mm-hmm. save your whole life and you can yeah. go through your entire life savings in a year. Yep. And they're like, that doesn't seem possible. It, it's absolutely possible. It especially is. so it's, it's like I said it's a donut hole if you have very little money then you're probably going to be okay with Medicaid yeah although your choices are low you can't just go to any right. nursing home and that's want. that's a really important point too I mean in New York most nursing homes accept Medicaid so even the really fancy ones have have Medicaid beds as well as the not so fancy ones um but as soon as you make that deal with the government that they're paying for your care, it limits your choices in terms of providers that you see. And the government can place a lien on your remaining assets that were originally protected as far, at least here in Texas, they can put a lien on your property. So that does happen with real estate. Most of us who do planning will try to make sure that we've gotten rid of the real estate to avoid that actually happening. But again, you've got to do the planning when there are still some liquid assets to be able to do that. You can't wait until the last minute. It always breaks my heart when someone will call me and say, okay, we've been spending now, we've been spending down. Okay, now what do we do? What can we preserve? And like, well, the time to call me was before you spent down. Right. You know, you call when you get the diagnosis, you call when the accident happens or better yet, you call when everybody's still really healthy and we have a conversation about what are your wishes, what are your preferences, and then let's see what can we do. Because there, I mean, just to make sure we mention this, there are look back laws with Medicaid yes. that, yeah. and I, this, if you're just, again, going with the, your neighbor said this and somebody transfers $10,000 to their daughter or their son, I mean, the government is going to be interested in that transaction. Yeah. People are yeah. always shocked that, well, how come they can pry into my life that way? And it's like, because you're asking them to fund your expenses. So they get to review what you've been doing with your money. And not just any expenses, your living expenses. Right. And that is your room and board. And I mean, right. pretty much the remainder, once you're going into a Medicaid nursing home situation, the idea is not that you're going to bounce right back out in 30 mm-hmm. days. I and mean, this is typically, right. you know, yeah. sort of the, 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 the remainder of your natural life will be in some sort of, right. of setting like that. Yeah. Um, so I know I've been picking your brain way longer than I told you yeah. I would, and I appreciate you tolerating that. Um, can, can you think, you mentioned just some like catastrophic things that are easily avoided with, with earlier planning. 
Can you just mention the top two or three things that you see that just gut wrench, like, oh my gosh, if they just would have done X, Y, Z, like, yeah, what are those I, things? Honest, honestly, and, and it could be a little different, but I, I think this is probably true wherever you're living. Um, power of attorney is by far for dealing with asset protection, the most important document anyone can have. Most people are worried about the will. What happens when I die? Well, if you have a catastrophic event happen, there might not be anything left when you pass away. So, you know, having a really comprehensive power of attorney in place that authorizes someone to step into your shoes and deal with all of the financial decision making that you might not be able to is going to make a huge difference, um, especially when I say comprehensive. Um, it has the your agent has the ability to make gifts on your behalf, create trusts, basically do planning, do anything that you could do with your finances. You don't want a limited one that just allows for bill paying. I'm talking about, you know, sit down with the attorney and make sure really you're naming someone you trust implicitly and that you put everything possible in there. Um, that's probably the biggest one. The other thing that, and we didn't talk about it on this because we were more focused on long-term care. These days, most wealth that people own is in their retirement accounts. And so those have beneficiary designations. Make sure your beneficiary designations are up to date and actually flow with your plan. You know, and that's free. That's something that's a setting usually within. It, the even plan. if you're doing, even if you're doing your own planning, if, if most employers now, it's something you do online. If you're retired, usually there's a form. If you if you've got you know a brokerage account with one of the big you know. I'm just throwing these out there, Fidelity, Vanguard, whoever, they have beneficiary designation forms. What I see a lot is people, if they're married, will have their spouse named as the primary beneficiary, and then they don't have anyone named as a contingent beneficiary. So that can cause major headaches if the spouse passes away and now you've lost capacity and don't have a power of attorney. Because now the default is whatever that company, the custodian's policy is. It's not necessarily what your state laws are. It's where do you have the money and what is their policy say who the beneficiaries are? You may not want those people to be inheriting. You know, and it's such a simple thing to be like, okay, let me fill out the form. This is who I want to have it. Right, right. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I was messing with a retirement account a couple of months ago and I realized I had never even realized that I could have designated inside that. And I'd had that for 10 years and yeah. Um, and it was literally a setting under settings. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, just right here. You just, you know, and I put right. in my husband's name and a couple other data points and yeah. it was automatically updated. And, right. you know, so that, that was, yeah, so that didn't require a whole lot of extra work. So, yeah. so if the first one is not designating a power of attorney or at least even having right. contingent ones, what would number two be? So number two would be the beneficiary designations. And so that's for any account where you have a beneficiary designation. Um, and then three, I would just say in general, people are very resistant to pay for a consultation with a professional, right? And so that might be me as the attorney. It might be a care manager. At the very least, pay for the consultation so you get some education and some pointed recommendations. If you choose not to go forward, fine, but at least find out what you don't know, right? Please stop relying on what you see on, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, if you still use it, you know, that's general information may or may not be accurate. 
and you have a unique situation. You know, it's always, it used to bug me with um, folks with young kids, right? People will go out and spend thousands of dollars on a really nice um, jungle gym for the backyard. Right. right. You know, like, okay, you got this beautiful play set. What are you doing about planning? Oh, that's too expensive. We don't need to worry about it. It'll all be taken care of. Okay. And I'm glad you said that because I think there's also a taboo of like everybody perceives that attorneys and physicians are expensive and they don't know how expensive and because they don't know, they just don't engage. And I'll just, for one data point, like I mentioned this in the podcast with my dad, he went through an entire process and, and did a lot of the things we've talked about today. And he said it cost him $3,500. Um, to end up with a folder and everybody was named and it was spelled out and there are even some more specific issues mm-hmm. with his property and like because he's got four yeah. children and yeah. uh, and she worked through all these things with him and I and I thought you know at the end of the day I mean 3,500 isn't bad because he said he sleeps better I sleep better because I love my three siblings and want him to have his wishes known even if he doesn't tell us it's like have him written down somewhere and somebody and now knows. you know it's done and you right. well you might maybe you know who to call but if not then there's a card or something in his house that tells right. you who has these documents when it's time um you know that's a big thing too tell tell people even if you don't want them to have access during your lifetime or until something happens at least tell them who to call right, right. because that's not a good feeling um you know happily that doesn't happen too often but Again, this week I had a call from someone whose parent had died very suddenly. No idea if there's a will anywhere, no idea who they would have used as a professional because they never had those conversations. Right. You know? How did they find you? They just found your card somewhere or just knew that? Oh, um, they know they know one of my colleagues so they called me for advice. Like, now what do I do? How do I go about looking through this? Oh, I see. Oh, I see. So, yeah. Um, so it's just, you know, you're already dealing with very highly emotional events, typically, right? Whether it's an illness or a death, whatever it might be, you don't need the extra anxiety and frankly, trauma of not having the financial things in place and the legal things in place. I mean, I joke with people, I'm like, Honestly, putting your estate plan together, yes, there's a lot of conversation that needs to happen. And depending on the family dynamics, it can be difficult. But that's the easiest thing to deal with because you make the decision, you put it in place, and then you just revisit it periodically and tweak it as needed, right? right? You know, medical decision-making, right? Things change over time. And we don't know what's going to happen with a particular diagnosis. Yes, the law changes, but we can react to that. Right. We usually we usually have some we might not have a lot of advance notice, but there's always gossip and there's information that people are talking about a proposed change to a law. You know, we generally don't find out, boom, someone proposed this and it got passed within 48 hours and now it's effective. It doesn't happen that way. Right. Doesn't happen with the law. So. So that, and that just underscores that um, state-based or more regional right. council is probably the best. But if I have somebody listening that is up in your neck of the woods and they wanted to get in contact <laughs> with you, can I? Yep. Do you have a website or can I put your your information in the, in the show notes? 
It's very easy. I am with Harris Beach. So it's www.harris2rsbeach.com. Um, so we are all over New York State, and then we do have offices in Connecticut, New Jersey, Washington, D.C. Um, and I don't practice in Florida, but I do have a few colleagues who practice in Florida. So. Yeah, there's no business in Florida, I've heard, right? <laughs> there's not <laughs> oh. elderly people in Florida. <laughs> yeah. wow. They should have like 50 offices there. Um, yeah. That's great. Well, I, I mean, this has been really great. I, I've always wanted to pick the brain of somebody with your experience, and you've done well above what I was uh, hoping to find. And I just appreciate you walking through this with us. Um, I like your kind approach because it is such a sensitive topic. I can't imagine speaking with somebody who was kind of, you know, unapproachable or like, <laughs> had a, I don't know, there, there's, I, I feel like it's just such an incredibly sensitive topic, but, but that just lends to just how important it is for our family relationships, for um, people's quality of life. I mean, you're, you're dealing with matters that literally mean how somebody spends the last part of their life. I mean, you can't get Absolutely. much more um, impactful than that. So thank you for what I know you're doing for your clients and then for coming on the podcast to share that with us. That's so amazing. And um, your, your time is so valuable and I just appreciate you spending it with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is lots of fun. And I always, I, I withheld asking all of my questions because anytime I can get a doctor, especially someone in the rehab setting, I usually <laughs> pick their brains. So I may follow up with you, but no, absolutely. I think you it's should interview fun. yourself about all the rehab things, and and maybe I've missed that in a prior episode because I haven't gone through all of them yet. But. No, no, you you can uh, you can you can come back and you'll be the guest host for the day. And <laughs> okay. You can you can flip everything around and be like, what do you see? And I'm like, oh, okay. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I'm, I'd love to have you back on the show, and I just uh, thank you for for being here today. Right. Rebecca, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around, talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.